For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. Hi and welcome to The Rock Podcast. Two things are necessary for a Christian to be effective and productive for the Lord. And in this morning's passage, the Apostle Paul lets us know what they are. Let's join Pastor Ross now with a message entitled, Be Wise and Be Filled. Good morning once again. It is time to get started. We're making our way to Ephesians chapter 5. We just have one little paragraph that got left off last time. Could it fit it in? And uh, we are going to take care of that this morning, Lord willing. Let's ask the Lord for his help. Now, Heavenly Father, we just uh, bow our hearts before you just to pause and just make room for your word and for a focus on the God-breathed word of God sent to save us and to bless us and to instruct and guide us. Uh, in the ways that are pleasing to God and lead to life, the wise ways. And so, Father, as we reflect on these truths, help us, Lord, by the Holy Spirit, who you sent to live in our hearts for that very purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, it's really cool when the midweek Old Testament study uh, dovetails with our Sunday morning New Testament teaching, as is the case this week, in a call for wisdom, where wisdom and and foolishness get presented as choices side by side, and of course, the call is to choose wisdom over what is called folly or stupidity. And so Wednesday night, the book uh, opens up. We finish chapter one, and uh, it opens up really kind of with a little bit of sarcasm as a lady wisdom is talking and pleading to everybody, hey, come to me, do things wisely, uh, shouting out, saying, here I am, I'm right here, choose wisdom. And then she says, by the end of the chapter, she says, and if you don't, you're just putting yourself in harm's way. And when that hammer comes out and you find yourself hitting yourself at the end, having neglected God's wisdom, I'm just going to be standing there with my hands on my hip and my finger wagging. I told you so. I told you so. And so, you know, we're, we've gotten off to a good start and some really cool things and, and the wise way to live our Lives And of course, the, the definition of wisdom is skillful. That's the biblical meaning. Wisdom, skillfulness at people, seeing what the real issue is, situation, having God's take on everything and acting accordingly. Really, that's a nice definition. The application of knowledge that, that makes you live wisely. Uh, and, and so there's always been the problem of having to choose it. It's an option. You can choose to go with wisdom or not. And, and that is why we must be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, 
but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And there you have it, one paragraph that is talking about now how to apply wisdom in our everyday personal lives. Now, next week, he's going to move on to how to apply wisdom in the marriage and that famous husband and wife uh, text uh, that shows us how to be smart uh, in our marriages. And then he moves in chapter six to wisdom um, in the workplace and wisdom in the family with fathers and mothers and children. And so for today, the idea is how to have wisdom and not play the fool in our everyday life. And so this paragraph divides quite nicely into two points. If you're taking notes, it's pretty easy this morning. Number one, be wise. Number two, be filled. These are two exhortations. Be wise, verses 15 through 17, uh, is going to tell us a little bit of what that looks like. And then be filled with the Holy Spirit, the rest of the passage, 18 through 21, will tell us a little bit of what that looks like, the Spirit-filled Christian life. And so let's start right away, isolate those verses, 15 through 17, and we'll, we'll, we'll attack the first point, a call to live wisely. He says, be very careful. Be smart how you live. Be on your toes because a lot is hanging in the balance. Now, it's not the first time that we get a call to wisdom. Of course, the Lord Jesus Christ wrapped up his Sermon on the Mount with the idea of the choice again. Two men, two ways to live uh, foolishly and wisely. And the way that Jesus wrapped up that beautiful sermon of his was to say, here's the wise guy. The wise man hears my words, puts them into practice. That guy's like built the foundation and his house upon that foundation. And when there's adverse weather, and there always will be in life, and the storms come, that house, that life will stand. And the Lord is really talking about death. And he's saying, man, you're going to be stable in this life and in the life to come, the wise guy. And then the Lord will say, but the foolish man hears the word. They both hear, but only one puts it into practice, the wise one. So the fool, he said, hears the words of Christ or the gospel, but doesn't put them into practice. He said, that guy's like building a house without a foundation on shifting sand. And he's going to get some adverse weather. And that whole building of his is going to come tumbling down with a great big crash. And so, yeah, we hear about wisdom. But of course, we've heard about the call of wisdom even before that. It's through Solomon. But even before that, do you know who was the first one to call us to wisdom? The devil in chapter, chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3. What did he tell our, our mother, Eve? I know what God said, but if you want to be wise and smart, you'll act in your own way, independent of God, and find out how to be smart without him involved. Because there's a reason he doesn't want you to eat 
Because in that day, you'll become as smart and wise as he is. So he's really keeping. So when Eve checked it out and said, well, it, it's edible, it looks delicious, and it's profitable to make me wise, so he says, in her pursuit of wisdom, foolishness and the root thereof enters the world. How paradoxical is that? That it was a quest for wisdom apart from God and his will that brings now the option of folly and foolishness to every human being. And from the fall, we will always have a choice. Choose God, his take, his word, his wisdom, and be wise and reap the consequences of wisdom, which is health and, and, and blessing and peace and all those good things, or do it your own way. Figure it out yourself. Do it the world's way or your natural inclinations of your broken, sinful heart. That would be called folly or foolishness or slash stupidity as it is translated in the Old Testament and New. And so that's where it all got us started. And unfortunately, wouldn't it be nice if you just got saved and the next second you're in heaven? You know, or, or that he just automates us so that there's no more sinning, no more foolishness. But the thing about wisdom and foolishness is that you can be really, really smart and really, really brilliant and still do dumb things. We see that all the time. Just read the paper. Amen? Amen. Smart people do dumb things. And it doesn't stop with the secular world. People who know a lot about the Bible, who know the Lord Jesus Christ, and the reason we need wisdom is because Christians who have a relationship, who are genuinely saved, are not exempt from doing stupid things. Therefore, the Bible says, Christian, since you have an option, and you do, because you still have some brokenness on board and a sin nature that wants to take control at times, and because you lived in a whacked out world where wrong is right and right is wrong, you better be very careful how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. And he's going to talk about that now. The word careful there comes from two Greek words that means to be looking around. So it means, it's kind of implying precision and accuracy with which to live. Paying attention to the details of your life. Well, just somehow Christians get the understanding. We know we're going to be evaluated for faithfulness and stewardship of our Christian life. We know that. But what we're, ex what we're exactly going to talk about, we're kind of vague about that. But what we're going to end up talking about happened today. This morning, this afternoon, we always think we're going to be talking about something way down the line or something, but actually, it's the here and now, it's the present moments of life that seem to, to just kind of pass without us knowing, and that's why he's saying, hey, 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 pay attention, be careful, live with some, we call it intentionality. That means you wake up in the morning with the intention of, of taking charge of every moment that happens to make it redemptive or uh, conducive to the Christian life. 
that it would obey Christ and, and do his thing. You know, uh, we take care, we, we're careful about lots of things that matter to us, right? Uh, school, uh, jobs, family, these kinds of things. Your appearance, right? Uh, we take care. Now, uh, he's saying, take care about your Christian life. One writer said, what a shame to take more care getting ourselves ready in the morning than how we respond to a difficult person in the afternoon. For the one has more serious ramifications than the other and should merit a heightened sense of care and concern. Oh, man, I think that sums it up rather nicely. So we're to be careful the way we live our lives because passing conversations matter. Passing thoughts matter. And the little in-between things is life. That's where it, it, it's all happening. And he says, be careful in those moments because you're just thinking, oh, it's just Tuesday afternoon at 1.30. I'm going to go get a coffee. It qualifies as life that you need to be thinking and, and aware of things, right? And so he says, not only are Christians to be careful, he says, I want you to be wise, not foolish. The word wise there in the Greek uh, Sophoi, where we get the word, the name rather, Sophie or Sophia, means to be wise. And of course, I already told you, skilled with people, skilled with self-management, skilled in circumstances that arise. And so he's saying, conduct yourselves like sensible people, not as simpletons. That is the New English Bible's translation of that line. Now, what does that look like? Paul says, if you want to be wise and not be a fool, there are two things I want you to keep in mind according to these verses here. Number one, wise people make the most of every opportunity. And number two, wise people find out what God wants from them and for them and, and acts accordingly. So let's talk about number one, make the most of every opportunity. Wise people, the verb there is to buy up or to redeem, or to take off the market. In other words, that in the moment of opportunity, where you're standing there, should I, should I talk bad about that person or not? Should I be, do the wise thing by keeping a tight rein on my tongue? Or should I do the stupid thing or the foolish thing and just uh, backbite that person or talk behind their back, right? So he's saying, buy, buy that up. Own that moment. Make that moment yours. You came into that moment ready and willing and able to commandeer life's little moments. And so now I have a choice to either tell the truth or lie. He says, buy it up. Buy it up. Take it off the market. It's not for sale anymore to the devil. It's not for sale for peer pressure. It's not for sale for your mom or dad to tell you what to do. It's just not for sale anymore because it belongs to Christ and you have budgeted that dollar for that moment and I'm telling the truth right there. That's what he's saying. You're gonna have a thousand opportunities to buy, to buy, to buy. And he says, spend wisely. Spend wisely because you're gonna have lots of auction items are gonna come up after this service, in the car, at dinner, at lunch, in your life, 
Are you aware? Are you redeeming the time? Those kinds of things is what he's talking about. We all get the same amount of time and opportunities. We get 60 minutes in an hour, and we get 24 hours in a day to spend. So he's saying the brevity of life and the speed at which it can fly by us is a strong argument to make the most out of every opportunity that God gives us. He's saying seize the day, people, and he's not saying it the way the world says, carpe diem. Okay, seize the day means, hey, man, grab life. You know, if you want to go be a rock climber, man, or if you want to do this, and nothing wrong with all of that. But he's just saying... In the context of God to his children, he's saying, seize the moment to make your life and your decisions count. Use wisdom. Do it God's way. Say, respond, react, decide scripturally, and you'll be blessed because it'll be wisdom. You know, yeah. I saw this saying, you've seen it too before. It says, lost, colon. Yesterday, somewhere between sunrise and sunset, two golden hours, each set with 60 diamond minutes. No reward is offered for they are gone forever. You know, uh, for my doctor of ministry program, I had to keep a journal for about, it seemed forever, but I'm sure it was only three or four months. And what I learned about how I spend my time and what, my, and what I do and what's important to me, by journaling, I had no idea. Maybe it would be helpful just to journal to be a, um, just about intent on doing God's will in your life and not to wake up one day and realize... What, where was I? How did all that time go by? Uh, yesterday, we were all given 24 hours. There was plenty enough time for all of us in the room to have spent some time with God yesterday, to have read one or two verses from the Bible yesterday, to share the gospel, one line, two lines somewhere, to point somebody in the right direction yesterday, to be warm, to be kind, to, look, to overlook an offense to say no to a temptation or to a lust, to prefer somebody else, to serve somebody, to write a check, to help the poor, to encourage somebody to send out an email and say, hey, I was thinking about you. I so appreciate you. I want to lift you up. I'm praying for you to pray with someone. We all had 24 hours. How did you do from God's point of view and your Christian life's point of view? And it is not a call to be some legalistic uh, grinding out the good deeds in some faked and forced way that drive everybody around you crazy. <laughs> not what we're talking about. Or drive yourself crazy. It's about when God unfolds an opportunity for you to make a call, make the wise call, because you're in the moment, present, thinking that's a, that's a decision. I could do it my way or I could do it God's way. I could be blessed 
or I could end up being a fool right now. So which do I choose? And he says, listen, if you see a mess, clean it up. If you hear somebody's uh, sad, cheer them up. If you know somebody is down, lift them up, build them up. It's just how life comes at you. And then he says, listen, you need to do this and be intentional. And by the way, that was the word I was searching for, which seemed to be 10 seconds there a while ago. Intentional about how you live because the days are evil. What does that mean? Well, the days mean the times. So he's saying, (laughs) folks, and this was 2,000 years ago, we live in a world that is going to make it hard for you to choose the wise thing because so much of the time they're doing the foolish thing. It's an upside-down kingdom. So the reason why I'm asking you to be very careful and and on uh, your tiptoes, as it were, you know, on point, is because this world isn't going to help you do the right thing. It's going to persuade you to do the wrong thing. Because of the times in which we live, you've got to go out there with a plan, with a start from the jump. You, you started the day in the word of God on your knees, not for an hour, for a few minutes, just to get focused and intent on how this day is going to go. That's where you start. The trajectory fails or succeeds from that point on. He says, man, uh, the world in which we live in is a place that really puts a lot of pressure on you. So you're going to have to be very quick and very intent and very careful to choose wisdom because it's not real popular. What did Jesus say? Luke chapter 17, I think it's verse 16. He says, the things the world esteems is an abomination to God. So he's, all he's saying is, you got to be on your game, Christian. you got to be careful because what, what is going to come second nature to you almost is to do the foolish thing but not if you're filled with the Spirit and you're taking care and walking with God in a wise way. Now, the other thing that wise do is they don't just guess their way about navigating their lives. He says, find out what the Lord wants and do that. That's what uh, we comprehend God's will and, and do it, and that's part of being wise. Now, some ways about knowing, finding God's will is pretty easy the end of 17 there, right? Because there are scriptures that come out and say, this is the will of God. And then it fills in for us. And we're like, wow, that's awesome. Don't have to go looking for that, right? So he'll say, uh, he has told you, oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. Here it comes. Take notes, put it on your refrigerator because you've got three clauses that tell you what God's will is. One, that you behave justly. Two, that you love kindness and mercy, and and three, that you walk humbly with God. That's one thing right there. What's God's will for my life? Well, there it is, Micah 6, 8. How about this one? God's will is that you should be sanctified. That means separated from sin. That you should completely abstain from sexual immorality. There's no man or woman, for that matter, in in the congregation that need to struggle over what God's will is in that department because it's laid out. What he's talking about is, A, the revealed will of God, do it. 
do it, and that's wisdom, right? But the individualized, specified will for your life. Should you marry that person? Should you even be dating that person? Should you take that job? When should you retire? Should you uh, walk through that door or leave that one closed? Those are hard decisions. And, and the, the fool is the person who doesn't look to the scriptures, doesn't look to godly counsel, doesn't even... Um, care to know what God thinks about it, doesn't pray about it, doesn't fast about it, just says this. They offer me a job. There's more and more money involved. Huh, no brainer. I'm taking it. That's what fools do, the Bible says. The wise person will say, I got to find out what the Lord's will, not my will. Perhaps he wants a job that, that, that is a different place and pays a different way. You'd have to ask him. You'd have to stop and pause and show the humility and the honor to God your Father because if he created you and you didn't create yourself, he created you with a purpose. And he's the only one who knows that purpose. He gives us the general purpose in the book, which is Greek, the Biblos, the Bible. In the book, we know the general will for all Christians, but do you really, it doesn't say whether I should take that job or not. So he says, is it in keeping with the scriptures? Can you support it biblically? Does it further the gospel? Does it strengthen my relationship with God? Is it helpful, spiritually speaking, to my family? What do pastors who I respect say about it? What are some spiritual principles that that might guide me in making a decision like that? That's wise. Because a person who just says, oh, you know, hey, uh, a position came open in Colorado Springs. We're going. Oh, I love the mountains. It's okay to love mountains. <laughs> and it's okay to take a new job. But you might want to say, God, what's your will in this for me? Since you're God and you created me, and you made the mountains, which I love, by the way. <laughs> Who's ever going to know 100% if you're hitting the bullseye on all these little things? I certainly don't. I don't. I think I got a clue at some major things, right, that I'm on the right track. But who knows about all of these things? The only way we're going to know about it is in heaven. But th that doesn't excuse us from going down the checklist. And then we could, he could say, wow, you know what? You missed it a little bit here, but look, look at you. I got the records of it. You spent X amount of hours in prayer. You fasted a lunch about it. You went and asked your pastor. Huh? He's not going to blame us for that. Where the fault will come is, is that just some door opened and you just thought, I like that door, and you're just going to walk through and not even take the time. Oh, yeah, you'll say it as you're walking through. Lord, I just pray that you bless me as I walk through this door that you obviously opened. <laughs> yeah, no, not good. <laughs> All right, so that's what's going on here. He says, uh, a wise person seeks to find God's nod or lack thereof. And that, that's in doing that, that's keeping uh, his will there and being wise. Okay, so 
we get it. So he says, be wise. And now he's going to say, be filled. So we need 18 through 21 here. Just beautiful. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And now come four in the Greek ing verbs that will, are associated with a Spirit-filled life. Okay, and so those four verbs are speaking, singing, thanking, and submitting. And let's take a look at that now. First of all, what a kind of a random comparison, contrasting going on between uh, drunkenness, being under the influence, and the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Now, when a person is drunk, they are under the influence, and now that is the, the comparison between being drunk and filled with the Spirit, the one thing they have in common is being under an influence. Now, with the, latter, with the former, you have a DUI, tells you the whole story, driving under the influence. Uh, but when someone's under the influence of the Holy Spirit's fullness, then you have, you're under the influence of a Holy Spirit and so there's goodness and power. You're under the influence of God himself. Uh, that's where the comparison ends, obviously, and now the contrast starts. Now, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, great preacher. If you ever see that name, buy whatever uh, he has written. Just wonderful man of God. But he was also an MD, a medical doctor, and so I'm gleaning from some things he wrote about this verse about alcohol. And so what he says here, he says, alcohol is categorized as a depressant, not a stimulant. Uh, so he says, in excess, alcohol affects first and foremost the highest control centers of the brain. In other words, it gets into the helm, right? And it starts flipping switches off that should be on, right? So the switches he switches off is uh, self-control, off, uh, wisdom, off, understanding, off, judgment, off, discernment, Woo. turn that one down. All right, in short, everything that makes you the highest and the very best have now been in excess alcohol, turned off, and they had a problem in Ephesus of wine and beer and other things. You know, the word pharmakia, where we get the word pharmacy, uh, is mentioned involved with sorcery and witchcraft because they chewed on things and they smoked things and they ate fungus, fungi, and they did those things. There's drugs in the Bible, pharmakia, right? So the Ephesians are coming out of a culture uh, where they drank too much wine, they drank too much beer, and they did too many drugs. And he says, that's an influence you don't want to be under because it leads to something called debauchery. Now, if you were alive 150 years ago, you know what debauchery is. And if you weren't, you don't, right? Because who says debauchery? You know, that's a bunch of but debauchery, right? That's, that's the only voice that's going to say that because we don't know what it is. And don't go to Miriam's dictionary to find out because you're just going to get a lot of words you don't understand. Lascivious, what? Licentious, what? 
profligate. A profligate? I don't know what a profligate is, you know? And then you look up profligate and it says dissolute. And then I looked up dissolute and it says dissipate. And then I just went to the Greek word. It was so much easier. Asotia. And it means a wild and undisciplined life that yields to any kind of vice that comes its way. Oh, a party animal. <laughs> I got it. A typical college guy. You know? Sorry, sorry. I just meant not a typical one. Not one that would go to this church. One that would go to another church, maybe. But. Here's what he's saying. When you're under that spirit, and by the way, I was passing a liquor store because I'm studying this, and you know, it's on my mind. I'm passing a liquor store, and it says, it's house of spirits. <laughs> That's how you call alcohol, spirits. It's like, I'm not sure we should be going in there to a house of spirits and buying some spirits, you know? I don't know what kind of spirits you're going to be getting over there, but, you know, he says too much of that spirit, and you're going to be in trouble. That's all I know, all right? And so, yeah, moving on. <laughs> Drinking too much wine or beer opens the door to a downward spiral of immorality and shame. For better results, come under a different spirit, one called the Holy Spirit. Now, let's talk about being filled with the Spirit because it's a command and it's in a tense that's awkward in English, so it means to keep continually be continually being filled with the Spirit. It's not just like a one-time thing. Now, listen, everybody who names the name of Christ, who comes to Christ and born again, you have the Holy Spirit. Jesus said the Spirit will be with you and he will be in you. First uh, Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 says, don't you guys realize the Holy Spirit's in you like a temple? You're the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? And so in Romans chapter 8 and verse 7, it says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Christ. So one thing we know about being filled with the Spirit is at conversion, we are in a sense filled with the Holy Spirit. However, there seems to be this dynamic of walking with the Lord, yielding to him where, he, where by yielding to him and obeying his word, that there's more, not more of him, but he has more of us. It's not, you can't get more of God. You got God in you, right, by his spirit. But being filled with the spirit means that God has more control of you. It's sort of the John the Baptist prayer where people are saying, hey, listen, John, everybody is going to Jesus and they're baptizing everybody. Dude, you're out of a job. You're John the Baptist. Where is everybody going to be baptized? You don't have to name your, rename your name, John the something else, because no one's coming anymore. And he said, you know what? He must increase, I must decrease. And so this is the understanding of being filled with the Spirit. It's not trying to get more of God in there, but less of the broken, self-centered, sinful you. And people always think, well, more of him and less of me. Well, I don't know. It just sounds so unappealing to just deny myself. Like, who am I? He's saying, deny the part of you that's given to sin without moral discernment. 
that broken troublemaker part of you, suppress that and up in the, with the Holy Spirit's touch and healing will come the true you in your unique, gifted personality, that fun person that's exciting with joy. He's not asking you not to be you. He's asking you to subdue the parts of your broken nature that are not in compliance with God's commands or will or his nature because they're not helpful. They're not helpful. So he says, listen, if you lose yourself for my sake, you'll find who you are. To lose the self that always wants first, always quick to get offended, you know. Lose that person for Christ's sake, and up will come this just the beautiful you. The beautiful you. He's saying, just cooperate with me. That's being filled with the Spirit. Well, I want to be filled with the Spirit. I don't think there's a, a morning that has gone by in 36 years that. I mean, when I pray, part of my routine, it's stuck in the way I think and pray. Lord, please, this day, fill me with your spirit. Oh, I got to talk to people about you and your word and important things matter today. I need to be filled with your spirit. So what do you have to do? Pray, ask him. Well, I've asked him. Well, then you have to obey. You have to obey and do things that don't put them in a box. Like he says, don't quench the Holy Spirit. That means quench, right? Don't grieve him. To grieve it would be, right. So don't do things in your mind and how you speak and how you live in ways that make the Holy Spirit withdraw in a sense, even though you don't lose your salvation. But do things that make him larger, Reading and obeying and having a good attitude. And these are the things that, that will cause you to be filled with the Spirit, I think. And so now to the quick four INGs that result from being filled with the Holy Spirit. The first one, and they're fun. They're, they're really, they're very intriguing. So he's saying a Spirit-filled person will be speaking to one another. We will be speaking to one another with hymns and songs uh, and spiritual songs and psalms. Now, what does that mean? Please, no wooden translations in a literal sense because that would be weird. Okay, we do not, we do not stop talking to each other when we become Christians in normal conversations and then going around talking to each other with hymnals, all right? So we're all holding hymnals and we'll say, good morning, what a mighty fortress is our God. <laughs> and then you could say, hold on, hold on here. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of the glory divine. And then the third person is like, I mean, what do I say to that, you know? Well, no, 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 no. He's not saying that, right? That's just weird. Here's what he's, well, does anyone do that? I hope, no. What is he saying? I'm going to tell you what he's saying. The joy of Christian fellowship is the love that we have for God. The thing that binds us all together, the gospel, uh, the joy, the wonder, the awe of our salvation. And that's what our songs are all about. Check out the hymns. Like I said, great is thy faithfulness. A mighty fortress is our God. His eye is on the sparrow, so I know he's 
got an eye on me. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let let me hide myself in thee. All of these things we sing about, that's the essence of who we are, our joy, our adoration, and our obligation to serve him. And he's saying, as you sing, speak. The boundaries and basis for your Christian conversations ought to come straight out of the hymns in your worshipful life. How much you love God, how great he is, what a shield and a protector and a provider in his faithfulness and the blood of Christ. And on a hill far away, people, you know, we've got, that's our conversation. That's what he's saying. Keep the conversation worshipful, Christ-centered, gospel-centered. And furthermore, those psalms that we sing, by the way, we're singing to each other. Yes, of course, we're singing ultimately in God's presence to God. But let me just show you some of the psalms. And there's lots of these. Come, let us sing to joy together. Let us shout to God, our rock, our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and praise him with music and song. For our Lord is a great God and great king above all gods. Who are we talking about? We're, we're saying to each other, hey, you know, how great is our God? Sing with me. How great is our God? And all we'll see, how great is our God? You see, he's saying, call each other up like you do in the hymns and worship. Call each other into right relationship. Remind each other who we are in Christ and what's coming our way. Let the basis of our Christian fellowship and our conversations come straight out of the worship hymn book, as it were. Does that make sense now? Oh, (laughs) I needed way more participation in the audience. All right, listen. I'm going to try that again. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, thank you for showing up to church. It's a good day to be in church, apparently. Amen? All right. Uh, num- number two. I really like that point. Um, number two. Spirit-filled people have something to sing about. They got, you know, and, it, and you say, I'm not a good singer. The Lord's got you on this. He says, sing and, for those who don't, make music in your heart. Dear the Lord, you know. Here's the point of this. Spirit-filled people are happy. They're happy people. There's no such thing as a sourpuss Christian. It doesn't happen. Yeah, we go through hard times. Yes, we grieve and cry. And things happen. But even then, even then, we have something to sing about. Death can't even get in the way. We're going to heaven. We have a God who said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. There's happiness. This happens to me a little bit more than it should. Uh, uh, In public, I'm always singing along. Something is stuck in my head, and I'm singing a worship song. So a while back, I walk and turn a corner, and it just, there was nobody there, and I'm singing something, how great is our God, whatever, and, and I turn the corner, and there's a guy standing there looking at me, and he goes, well, somebody's happy, and I said, I'm going to heaven, and he goes, just like that, and you know, I don't know what that meant, <laughs> 
But I know the Holy Spirit was on him afterwards saying, are you happy? Do you wish you were happy? You'd be happy. Hmm? Right? Listen. He says, spirit-filled people aren't all oh, miserable, bitter, anxious, worried. They got a song to sing. Why? Their sins are washed away, never to be used against us ever. And Jesus is for us. Who could be against us? And uh, thirdly, it just kind of comes along the same lines. Thankful. He says, be thankful, be grateful. It, gratitude is called the mother of all virtues, and let me tell you why. When a person is grateful or thankful, they understand they're indebted, that somebody had to help them out of something they couldn't do. Therefore, they were thankful. They have a gratefulness. It puts them in a humble place, and a grateful, thankful person wants to serve doesn't have an attitude, doesn't think of themselves more highly than they ought. They're thankful. They're always thanking God, thanking God. My father-in-law, he's in heaven now with the Lord. He always had this thing about, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus, all the time. We're driving in the, in the van, and I took, he took me to deliver a piano. He's over at Sonoma Piano for years. And now we're just turning a corner, and I just remember this... Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And he always was doing that. And he always had a countenance of brightness and radiance on that man's face. Why? This is thankful. Thankful. God didn't treat him according to his sins, but according to his mercy. And a great thankful people are fun to be around. They're contagious. Uh, they get more done. They're healthier. He says, if you're filled with the Spirit, you're going to be thanking, thanking, thank you, Jesus. And then finally, just kind of out of the, the oddball on the team, right? It's kind of like awkward what, uh, because we're, we're speaking, got it, singing, got it, thankful, got it. And by the way, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. What? What does that mean? Well, I'm going to tell you since you're asking all the right questions this morning. <laughs> Spirit-filled people submitting to one another. Well, well, first of all, what it doesn't mean. He's not throwing out the authority structures in life that God himself has established in the home or at work or in government or in uh, the church. They remain. Uh, it's not about now a child going to his parents and saying, see, mom, you got to submit, you know, because it, it says, hey, submit to one another, you know, you're another, and you need to submit, right? That's, no, 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 no. no that's just, here's, here's what it means. It's a, a, it means to be subject or subordinate in attitude, even if you are in an authority structure, there's some wiggle room so that you don't end up bossing people around in your spirit-filledness and be brash and inflexible so that a parent who does have an authoritative role but given by God over a child has some wiggle room to be able to say, hey, Johnny, listen, 
Daddy lost his temper last night. You know, I asked you to brush your teeth 400 times. And, and the 401st time, I shook you. And I, I just, I shouldn't have done that, all right? Daddy lost his temper. That was wrong. And will you forgive me, Johnny? That's a subjective attitude toward one another in while still remaining the authority. But there's wiggle room to say, I can come under. Abraham, do everything Sarah says, because right now she's smarter than you. <laughs> that's, that's my paraphrase. <laughs> in the Old Testament, Abraham didn't want to do something God wanted him to do, and he told Sarah. Sarah told Abraham. Abraham said, I don't want to do it. And God tells Abraham, listen to your wife and do everything she's telling you to do. So there it is. Did, did God say, let's flip this? No, he's saying, Abraham, when you're subjective, when, when, when you're subject, I should say, when you're humble, when it's not all about you, you're able in your place of God-given authority to say, it's not all about me. There's a, a person Jesus shed his blood for there, and I need to respect and humble myself and just not think, uh, you know, he was so big on people not bossing people around and using their authority like the world does to be served. He says, rather, I want you to be humbly servant and, and willing to take the low road and come around and nurture People. That's what that me means. Totally, a hundred percent. One commentator pointed out, as we bring this to a close, that spiritually mature people often, when they think they so-called are spirit-filled, often get aggressive, self-assertive, and and brash. They try to take charge of all the less fortunate, uh, unspiritual Christians in the church. If you are as spiritual as I am, then listen, I'll tell you what, spirit-filled people, they don't intimidate you, they don't press you, they don't make you feel like you're never going to live up. And I said this to the first audience this morning, dear, sweet, wonderful ladies, who have it all together, and you come out at 5.30 in the morning with your four devotionals and your two Bibles and your journal, all right, with your worship music playing a candle lit and potpourri wafting through the house. Your husband is very different from you. When we have feelings once in a while... One or two of them will come our way and we will voice them. But here's how we show primarily, we show our love to God through hard work. We'll take a bullet for you. We will work our fingers to the bone. We will have not a life as long as you are taken care of and the kids have food. And we're not real readers. We're not real readers. We don't have four devotionals. We don't have it playing in the background while we're reading it on top of taking notes with our toes. <laughs> ladies, ladies, ladies. And when you are spirit-filled, you can't help somebody else by intimidating them and making them feel less. Rather, a spirit-filled person will come alongside in subjection 
and, and build that person up and make them feel good about the things that they are doing that show that they are spiritually inclined and are grounded in the truth and are taking care of business, not in the lovely, beautiful way that you happen to be. Amen? <laughs> There's a husband right there. <laughs> oh, come on, right? And so, and of course, that can go either gender and either spouse, but I have had my share of couples on the couch in that order just saying, listen, verse Peter says, wives, a gentle and quiet reverent spirit without words will win your husband over through your beautiful behavior and your meekness and the way you affirm him and make him feel respected. There is not one man in the world when he feels like he is a woman's knight in shining armor and that he has 100% of her respect, that she overhears her bragging to her girlfriends, not how unspiritual he is, but what a wonderful man of God and integrity. When he hears that, oh, you're going to have a changed man. Amen. Amen. Oh, you got another husband. <laughs> Listen, next week, husbands, get ready. Fasten your seatbelt because you're going to get hit between the eyes. <laughs> so ladies, don't worry. <laughs> next week, chop, chop on your husband. All right. So guess who's going to be out of bed first and, and pulling the husband next Sunday morning? Yeah, all right. All right, praise the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wonderful word, Lord, that keeps us laughing, keeps us crying, keeps us in awe. And just this living dynamic, Lord, that we take into our hearts and let you have your way. We're so grateful, God, for your great love and patience in all of our wacky selves, Lord. And we thank you. We give you now these closing moments where you just seal, seal that truth in our hearts, Lord, help us to eat the meat, spit out the bones, and walk away encouraged, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Closing song. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.